Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Are the very foundations of dark matter crumbling? How can a planet be blacker than black paint? And what are the sunsets like on a planet with two suns? In this month's Naked Astronomy, we'll discover Kepler-16, that's a planet with two suns. We'll look to recent experimental results to see if the cold, dark matter theory still stands. And we'll explore the least reflective planet ever found. I mean, this is darker than black paint. It's very peculiar. So we're now having to, to think, is there something more exotic going on here? Is there some chemistry going on, which we don't see in the Earth's atmosphere and we have to now try to understand what chemistry might be occurring in this extremely alien environment. And that chemistry means that it reflects less than 1% of the light that falls on it. Plus, we find out what's been happening in the night sky over the summer, we rocket our way through a fact impact on asteroids, and our expert panel put their minds to your questions. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First this month, we join Dominic Ford, Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford to find out what they have been doing this summer. Well, I've just come back from a month in Perth in Western Australia where I've been at a conference looking at the detector technologies that might be used for the Square Kilometre Array, which is the radio telescope which I'm working on, which will be built somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere in about five years' time. And it was really quite exciting to see the work which is going on in both Western Australia and also in South Africa, working on the Pathfinder projects. So in Western Australia, you've got the Merchant Widefield Array and the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, both of which are coming online in the next couple of years and there's really tremendous progress going on on those projects. In South Africa, you've got the Meerkat telescope, which is also coming online in the next couple of years, and is also making tremendous progress. So I think uh, looking ahead to when a decision will be made on the site for the SKA on February 26th next year, I think it's going to be a very close call, and I think it's going to be very exciting to see which country the SKA ends up being built in. It seems that, regardless of the final decision, actually both countries have already done a great deal towards furthering our knowledge and and developing the infrastructure, and and things like Meerkat are fantastic examples of this technology in use, even if they don't get the SKA in the end. Yes, and I'm sure those Pathfinder telescopes will make tremendous discoveries in their own right. Thank you, Dominic. Andrew, you've also had quite a busy summer. Well, yeah, it's it's mainly been busy because I've been moving house, But uh, towards the end of the summer, I've been getting back towards science and I started that process by going to the British Science Festival in Bradford. I saw a whole load of events up there with lots of exciting new results, um, but I was lucky enough to be able to talk in a few of them and actually was kind of self-indulgent. I spoke a bit about some of my own recent work, which has been looking at the way that dark matter behaves and in particular the way that the uh, the behaviour of dark matter is modified in the centre of galaxies by the violent uh, processes that are going on within those galaxies, things like supernova explosions. So, Andrew, you've been clearly very busy promoting science. Carolyn, what have you been up to? 
Well, I've actually been indulging some amateur astronomy because it's always nice in the summer to to spend those evenings out watching the sky, even though it doesn't get very dark in England. But, you know, there's been a lot going on, a couple of comets. We've had a not quite unaided eye supernova, but still a pretty pretty bright supernova. Uh, Persids weren't fantastic because of the full moon and also cloud in Cambridge. And the interesting thing this week, of course, is, you know, just that hope that there might have been some northern lights, but they haven't made it down as far as Cambridge, or certainly not last night. Though I should go out tonight and have a look. And that's just because the the sun is now waking up and, well, it's been waking up for a while, but it's now got a lot of very active sunspots that have been producing um, a lot of this interaction with our atmosphere. So um, it's exciting times just to keep an eye on the sky. And if I can bring all three of you in, there's been what could be a very groundbreaking moment in science recently in in the discovery of neutrinos possibly travelling faster than light. Now, if this turns out to be confirmed and to be true, then we're going to have to rethink quite a lot of theoretical physics. But what's your perspective on it? Well, if it turns out to be right, then it's a radical rethink of a lot of theoretical physics. But it's a very big if. It seems much more likely at this stage that there's some unknown, unaccounted for problem, which is, is probably quite subtle because I think they've, they've done quite a careful job, the Italian collaboration, of been looking at this. But there's still a, a strong possibility that something is slightly wrong with the experiment and the timings are slightly messed up, so they've calculated a speed that's actually slightly incorrect. I guess there are lots of potential errors that we need to look at. So the the timings, I understand that they controlled for very tightly. But, for example, the distance, may there may be an error in the measure of the distance that would mean that ultimately that speed was was not what it appeared to be. Yeah, the, the distance is actually calculated using GPS, which is quite surprising at first, um, because I'd certainly never thought uh, about this. And my understanding was that GPS at best was accurate to about one metre, which would not really be enough for, for the kind of accuracy they're claiming. But it turns out you can, if you're clever enough, you have good enough equipment, you can kind of correct it down so that you get accuracies more like two centimetres. And two independent teams have done that calculation and come up with the same baseline distance so again there's there's a possibility for error there it's certainly going to be quite a subtle error and one thing that we should mention though is that there are astronomical observations which flatly contradict this result for instance um, observations of neutrinos coming from a supernova uh, I think it's 1987a the first neutrinos were measured from that about two hours before the light signal was seen, just because of where telescopes were pointing at the time. Whereas if, if there was this difference, if the neutrinos were going that much faster, then uh, I think the, the difference would be more like four years. So you'd have seen the neutrinos four years before you saw any light signal, whereas in fact it was more like two hours. So the fact is that there are other observations that seem to to really contradict this result, and so we should be looking carefully at the distance and the time measurements. That was Andrew Ponson, and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford. They'll be back later with this month's Fact Impact, our high-speed lowdown of facts and figures, as well as taking on your space science questions. But first, to the discovery of an extraordinary planet... Tres 2b is a Jupiter-sized planet some 750 light-years away, and it reflects less than 1% of the light that falls on it, making it blacker than even matte black paint. To find out more, I spoke to Dr David Kipping from the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. This particular target we were looking at is called Tres 2. It's very interesting from our perspective because 
It was known to have a planet before uh, the Kepler space mission even launched. So when Kepler launched, uh, it was looking at uh, about 100 square degrees on the sky, and three stars within its field of view were already known to have planets, and one of these, as I say, was Trace 2. So the nice thing about this was that because Kepler knew there was a planet there, they observed it very intensely from day one, and uh, they have basically two modes of observing stars, short cadence and long cadence. You can kind of think of short cadence data as, as like high definition, basically. It's like seeing high definition TV. This is a high definition transit-like curve that we get. It's about 30 times more data than the long cadence data. So we get a really nice clear image, basically, of this transit-like curve. So you're looking at the light that comes from this system, and in particular how that light changes over time. Yes, because we cannot resolve spatially the planet and the star from each other. We just see them kind of merged together as a single blob of light on our camera's CCD. Uh, and this is because the star is 750 light years away from us, and the planet is also a very, very close-in planet relative to the star. It uh, orbits its star once every two and a half days. So it's, it's what we'd call a hot Jupiter, very tight in, massive planet around a, a sun-like star. But because, you know, it's so far away from us, 750 light years, there's, there's no way you could possibly resolve it um, from each other. So we just see the combined light, and what we look for is the eclipse of the planet, basically. This is how the planet was first detected. So when the planet transits in front of the star, just like an eclipse, we see a, a slight dimming of the starlight. In this case, it's about 1%. And then the, the planet finishes its eclipse, and the light returns to its normal level. So once every two and a half days, we see this little dip in light, and that tells us that there's a planet there. So this was known since 2006. That technique has been used to spot quite a few exoplanets now, and the majority of them are these, these hot Jupiters, these very large planets very close to the star. What was so special about this particular planet? We wanted to look at hot Jupiters in more detail, and as you say, there's many hot Jupiters known. Out of these three special stars which were in Kepler's field of view, this target was particularly nice because the star was fairly quiet. It wasn't a nuisance to us. And uh, it was kind of thought that hot Jupiters in general might be very dark objects. And this is because they're so hot that we didn't think that they would have clouds in their atmosphere and clouds are very reflective. And it was also proposed that the atmospheres of hot Jupiters would have lots of light-absorbing chemicals in their atmosphere such as vaporized sodium and vaporized potassium. In fact, signals of these molecules had already been detected uh, using spectroscopy. So it was, it was interesting to see if we could really detect how dark this planet was. And up to now, before Kepler at least, previously we'd only had utter limits on how dark these planets were. And that's because they were so dark, you couldn't detect any light coming off them. So the best you could do is say, okay, it's less than 15% uh, reflective, was pretty much close to the, the best limit by that point. So we wanted to use Kepler and monitor the planet all the way around its orbit. So if you watch the planet go all the way around its orbit, you're basically seeing the different phases of the planet, just like you see the different phases of the moon, in fact. So if you imagine when it eclipses, you're actually looking at the night side of the exoplanet. So it's more or less at its darkest, the darkest you're ever going to see it at that point. 
And then as it moves all the way around its orbit, you see it move from a crescent until basically a half planet. And then eventually, just before it disappears behind the back of the star, you're seeing the planet fully bathed in light. So at that point, it's at its most reflective. And specifically what we did was to measure this orbit and look for the difference between basically that day side when it's fully bathed in light and the night side of the planet. And that difference essentially gives you a measure of how reflective the planet is. Even if we could resolve the planet visually, so if we could take essentially photographs of it, mm-hmm. it must be very hard to tell how much light comes from the planet when it's, it's bathed in the glare of its, its parent star. How do you get around that? Is it purely by looking at the total light that comes from the system you're able mathematically to derive how much must be bouncing off the planet? Uh, Yeah, so we see the star and planet combination basically uh, gets very, very slightly brighter as it goes from night to day. And the difference we measured was, in fact, the smallest photometric uh, signal. By photometric, I mean basically a change in brightness. The smallest signal ever detected from an exoplanet. This was six millionths the brightness of the host star was how much it changed by This signal was so small that even an instrument like Kepler cannot easily get at it. We had to watch 50 orbits of this planet and basically add up all of those orbits on top of each other in order to detect this signal. So it really was an exquisitely small signal, and it was much smaller than we expected. We were kind of thinking that these planets would be around 5 to 10% reflectivity. It turned out this planet was less than 1%. The difficult thing for us was that because it, was, it seemed to reflect so little light, we were actually in the regime where you get a mixture of both re- reflected light and also thermal emission from the planet itself. So this, this planet is very close to its star. It's very hot. It's about 1,800 Kelvin. And because of this, it's basically glowing red with heat. So we see a very small amount of light coming from this planet. But we're, because we know how hot the planet is, we're very sure that almost all of the light that we are detecting is in fact this red glow, which means that what's left, the reflectivity, must be a very, very small component. So this planet is exquisitely unreflective. If you were flying by it in a spaceship, you would be able to see it. You'd see this red glow coming off it, but you wouldn't see any other colours. You wouldn't see any blue light, any green light scattering off the atmosphere because it doesn't reflect anything from the sun, essentially. So the image that you're building up really is, is very much like a hot coal. Coal being very good at absorbing light, so it's, it's very black and very matte, but it also glows this, this lovely red colour. Is that actually what you think it might look like if human eyes were able to see it? Possibly, yeah. I think that's a good analogy. And the, perhaps the difference would be that there would be some inhomogeneity on this planet. So you would see the night side would be more or less completely black, whereas the day side of the planet would be, as you say, glowing red like a piece of hot coal. And we think probably on these planets that the, the hottest part isn't actually the part which faces the sun. We think because of winds blowing around the planet, the hot spot actually gets slightly shifted over by as much as 20 degrees in longitude. And these winds are being generated by the fact that the day side and the night side are so different in temperature that there's a, a very strong convection occurring in the atmosphere. 
do the conditions on this planet and, and the situation it's in actually make it a bit harder to study? Quite often we rely on that reflected light to tell us something about the planet. For example, with the spectroscopy, is it harder to work out what might be in that atmosphere? I wouldn't say in terms of the planet's uh, fundamental parameters there's anything that makes this a challenge. It's a fairly typical sun-like star. The brightness of the star is actually pretty good in terms of uh, doing spectroscopy. It's a, it's a 12th magnitude star. This is actually kind of Kepler's sweet spot. It was the type of stars that it was really designed to look at. And in terms of doing spectroscopy, people have actually tried and uh, succeeded in, in getting um, some kind of broad band pass spectroscopy of this planet. I think one of the challenges of doing this, particularly as you go nearer and nearer towards the visible band pass, which is course the you know the color that we were looking at with with kepler is that we because now we know this planet reflects so little light if you wanted to try and measure that light you're going to have to have a very sensitive telescope to do so because there's very little coming off it in in general there's two ways we can measure the spectrum of a planet we can measure uh, the light coming off it directly which is kind of what we did here or you can actually measure the light which skims through the, through the atmosphere itself. So this works by when you see an eclipse and the planet moves in front of the star, the, the very annulus of the planet, the terminator as we call it, of the atmosphere, can transmit some light through to you. If you imagine it was, uh, you had sodium in the atmosphere, for example, you would see a very uh, flat spectrum until you got to the wavelength at which sodium is particularly good at absorbing light. And once you got to that wavelength, the planet's atmosphere would essentially appear much bigger because it's absorbing more light. So what you can see, we can basically measure the size of the planet as a function of wavelength, and you see that at some wavelengths, the planet appears to be much bigger. And that's basically because the atmosphere absorbs light very well at that wavelength, which in turn tells us, okay, there's sodium in that atmosphere or there's potassium or whatever. So using that technique is probably going to give us more success in this case because the light coming off the planet itself is, is negligible. But as it transits in front of the star, we can um, potentially look for these molecules. So we can get a reasonably good understanding of, of what's actually in the atmosphere. Does that explain why it's so dark? Partly. We do think sodium and potassium, as I say, are in this atmosphere, and these molecules are very good at absorbing light. We know that there must be something absorbing light in this atmosphere. Gas giants are, are typically made up of hydrogen and uh, light molecules. These molecules, even if you had no clouds at all, they should still scatter a small amount of light, just in the same way that basically our sky is blue. So when you look at the sky, you have a, you have a blue sky because the atmosphere of the Earth is very good at scattering blue light in a process called Rayleigh scattering. And you expect this to happen for basically a vanilla atmosphere. So even if there's nothing in it whatsoever, it should scatter a certain amount of light. We know that this planet is darker than that, which means that there is something above, there's some layer above that which is actually absorbing all the light. So the question is, what is that? And as I said, you know, sodium and potassium could do it. But in this case, the albedo is so low, I mean, the reflectivity is so low, that you'd have to have an enormous overabundance of these molecules in order to explain why it's so dark. I mean, this is darker than black paint. It's very peculiar. 
So we're now having to, to think, is there something more exotic going on here? Is there some chemistry going on, which we don't see in the Earth's atmosphere, certainly, and we haven't seen in laboratories before. And we have to now try to understand what chemistry might be occurring in this extremely alien environment, which is, as I say, around you know, 2,000 degrees centigrade, and certainly is not a planet anything like we have in our solar system. And this is one of the exciting challenges that I think this work brings out, that there are things going on in atmospheres that we don't fully understand yet, and we will try very hard to follow up and to understand what's going on. That was David Kipping from the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come we'll be hearing about Kepler-16b, the first planet known to have two sun-like suns. But first, it's time for a fact impact. All you need to know about asteroids. There are several million asteroids contained within our solar system. Most travel in orbits at distances between 300 and 600 million kilometres from the Sun. In a region of space located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, known as the asteroid belt. Which contains over 40,000 known objects of over one kilometres in diameter. Although it contains such a high number of objects, the asteroid belt is still only thinly populated and several robotic spacecraft have travelled safely through it. The first of those was Pioneer 10 in 1972. Overall, over 100,000 asteroids have been confirmed as detected and at least 30,000 have well-determined orbits. Asteroids can be classified into three types according to whether their composition is primarily carbon-rich, stony or metallic. The majority, over 75%, are the dark, carbon-rich objects. The asteroids are thought to be the debris from shattered planetesimals that were prevented from forming planets due to the strong gravitational tides created by the nearby giant planet Jupiter. The total mass of all the objects in the asteroid belt is still only about 4% of the mass of the Earth's moon. Asteroids have a wide range of size, from almost 1,000 kilometres across down to tens of metres in diameter. And the number of asteroids increases rapidly with decreasing size. Very few asteroids around, and most are irregular in shape. This is partly due to collision with other asteroids. And also it's because they're not massive enough to have enough gravity to pull themselves into a spherical shape. Some asteroids even have their own satellite moons, such as little dactyl that orbits the asteroid Ida. The first asteroid found was Ceres, which was discovered by accident by Italian priest and astronomer Giuseppe Piazzi, on the 1st of January, 1801. The name asteroid was originally proposed by the British astronomer William Herschel and was taken from the Latin words aster, meaning star, and oid, meaning rock or planet. Three more asteroids, Pallas, Juno and Vesta, were discovered in the next six years. After that, it was another 38 years until any more were found. Vesta has a colossal crater 460 kilometres in diameter near its south pole, which lends the asteroid the overall look of a punctured football. This crater is thought to be due to an enormous impact event less than a billion years ago. Which spread debris from the asteroid far and wide. In fact, about one in every 20 meteorites that falls to the surface of the Earth is probably a bit of Vesta. The idea of a planet with two suns will not be an alien one, if you'll pardon the pun, to fans of science fiction. 
The desert planet Tatooine was home to a young Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars films and a two-sun sunset featured in the 1977 film Star Wars A New Hope. That's the first of the franchise to be made. Now, astronomers have found a real counterpart to the fictional planet and named it Kepler-16b. I spoke to Dr Lawrence Doyle of the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. When planets go in front of single stars, they cause a dip, and then sometime later they go in front of the star again, and that's called a transit. And the light blinks a little, and that's how Kepler detects planets. So the planet goes in front of the star, and maybe a, a month later it goes in front of the star again, and then it goes a third time and you have a planet and you know it's period. In my case, uh, I wanted to look for planets going around two stars at once. And what's tricky is the stars don't stay in the same place. So the signal is not periodic. That's what made it complicated. So because you have these two stars, a binary system, they will be orbiting around their common center of mass. So rather than just staying still, these ones will naturally vary in brightness regardless because of that joint orbiting. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, basically, when Kepler was launched, the single star people had their targets. But we had to pick out what are called the eclipsing binaries, the double stars that orbit in front of each other. So the first two years of the mission, we were actually picking out our targets. Then we could look for circumbinary planets. But when the planet moves across the star, where the star is supposed to be, if it's two stars, they're actually silhouetting the planet as they move more quickly behind it. So you get this funny quasi-periodic signal that isn't so easy to have a computer search for because it's not periodic. It's changing. And so uh, basically that was the hard, that's what made the, the problem more difficult. Also the interpretation of many little dips that occur at random times because of that motion. What proportion of stars that we know of, and in particular stars that, that were in Kepler's field of view, what proportion of those are these binary pairs? Well, about half the stars in the galaxy or more are in double star systems. But ones that are close enough or aligned to us to eclipse each other, in other words, eclipsing binaries, are about one in 70 star systems. But still, that's quite a significant number of stars. And Kepler has a fairly wide field of view. So presumably, there should be quite a few targets for you to look at. Oh, yeah. Yeah, basically, Kepler actually sees probably 15 million stars, of which we download 155,000 of them that are the brightest. So as far as the brightest eclipsing binaries in the field, we found over 2,000 of them. That's what took us a couple of years. So for other people using Kepler to try and spot planets around lone stars, they essentially use software to look for these periodic dips in brightness. What do you have to do or how do you have to adjust that software in order to look for these more specific systems? Basically, I just looked. I displayed the light curve and looked for extra features. And it meant looking through tens of thousands of light curves. But while we tried to come up with software to search such features, the easiest thing was just to look. So we actually are the Eclipsing Binary Working Group, which is a subgroup of the Kepler Science Team, we just looked through a whole bunch of light curves and picked out these uh, systems that had extra features. And we've also discovered a number, about a dozen triple eclipsing systems. But in this case, with Kepler-16, the dip in brightness was shallow enough so it could still be a planet. So 
so we did some follow-up on that specifically with the idea that it might be a planet. It sounds like intensive work if you're having to do all of this by hand. And I, I'd imagine at times it must be frustrating. But t- tell me about Kepler-16 itself. What do we think is going on there? First, we saw this uh, little extra dip that was about a 1.7% drop in the brightness, which Kepler can easily detect. Even amateurs from the ground can probably detect it. It basically turns out to be a Saturn-mass planet in a circular orbit of 229 days around two stars that eclipse each other. And the two stars go around each other in a slightly eccentric orbit every 41 days. So we have an orange star, which is about 69% the mass of the sun, going around with a red star that's 20% the mass of the sun. And then the planet orbits both of them just outside what we would consider the habitable zone. But what's remarkable is most of what we know about the size of stars comes from eclipsing binary systems. Because they eclipse each other, we can see the sizes of the stars. And virtually all we know about the size of planets comes from their transiting. That is, planets that happen to orbit along our line of sight and go across the stellar disk. We know the size of the star, so we can get the size of the planet. But in this case, the planetary orbital plane is within a third of a degree of the eclipsing binary stellar orbital plane. They're exquisitely lined up with each other, and those two are lined up with our line of sight. So we were able to measure Kepler-16 extremely accurately. As a matter of fact, I think it's the most accurately measured planet outside the solar system. That obviously is incredibly good fortune for you, that, they, that it happens to be so well aligned. What else can you tell from the way in which they actually orbit each other? Basically, the dynamics of that are difficult to explain. There are some theories that said that circumbinary planets wouldn't form because the two stars would dissipate the forming dust disk. You know, there's a disk of material called the protoplanetary disk. And as it forms, they thought two stars in the middle would disrupt the disk and dissipate it before it could accrete into planets. Other people said it would cause actually a shaking up of the material so that it would coagulate into or accrete into planets sooner. Well, this kind of settles the question, but it kind of settles it in a way that you get this exquisitely aligned orbit of the planet forming around the same plane as the binary star. So theorists are going to have to explain that, and it's going to be a tough thing to explain because it's so well aligned. Plus, the planets in this circular orbit, and recently we've measured that the alignment of the rotation axis of the large star is also exactly perpendicular to the two orbits as well. So the whole system is amazingly lined up, and and it is fortunate it lined up with us because even that third of a degree is a lot when you have a 229-day period. In other words, it has to be really exactly aligned. And the whole system, because the planet affects the two stars and vice versa, the whole system is rotating slightly. So in 2018, the transits will cease for about 24 years. So we we really were, in a sense, very very lucky to have caught this particular planet. But 
what do we think of the likelihood of spotting other ones in similar systems? Well, what's interesting is we now know how to do it. We now know how to recognize the tug of the planet on the eclipses of the stars. So we now know how to spot them, and I'll predict that by the end of the year we'll have a couple more. And just finally, what do you think conditions on that planet are actually likely to be? This is a planet that presumably sees two sunrises and two sunsets. It's been compared to Tatooine, the uh, planet that Luke Skywalker grew up on in the Star Wars films. But what do you expect the conditions would be like on the planet? You know, when we first discovered it, I remember writing, uh, emailing everybody and saying we should ask George Lucas if we can nickname this guy Tatooine. Uh Aha! You know, NASA uh, Public Relations took an interest in that, and uh, Lucasfilms took an interest in it. So we actually had John Knoll, who's director of Industrial Light and Magic, as part of the press conference. Basically, it's two-thirds of a Tatooine. The planet is, is half rock and ice and half gas. And we don't know how that's distributed, so we don't know if there's a sudden you know, surface like on Earth or whether it's a gradual increase in density like Saturn. But it's about a Saturn mass, so we don't expect it to be habitable. But it, we're looking for a moon around it right now. And that would be a question, whether a moon could be habitable. But uh, if you were to stand you know, near the planet, you would see a sunset that changes every day because sometimes the red star would set first and sometimes the orange star and sometimes they'd set together and eclipse. So you see this moving star system and and it would cast two shadows, of course, but for example, the shadow of from the orange star would uh, be filled in with the red star if the red star was offset at an angular, some angular extent from it and vice versa. So you kind of have a, if there's a surface, you'd have a world where you have orange and and red shadows, and everything's changing constantly. So I can't imagine what the calendar would look like. Lawrence Doyle of the SETI Institute in California. This is Naked Astronomy, and very soon we'll hear about the recent challenges to the cold dark matter theory, one of the cornerstones of cosmology. But first we go back to Andrew Ponson, who's taking on David Barlow's question, when Earth was born, were there fewer stars in the universe? Well, the short answer is yes. But it's perhaps a bit more interesting to ask, how do we actually know? The first thing to say is that stars explode in supernovae. So you can actually, once you've formed a star, sort of get rid of material from that star and and reduce the overall amount of stuff in stars in the universe. That's a relatively small fraction. So to sort of first order, you can imagine that once you've formed a star, that star will be there pretty much uh, forever. And so the number of stars in the universe can only ever increase And so then we just have to go and look at how many stars have formed in the time since the Earth formed. And there are sort of two ways of getting at that. The first is through something that we call stellar population studies. And that's looking at stars in galaxies today. And we can measure properties of their light, the intensity of the light and the colour of the light coming from those galaxies to kind of work out what kind of properties the stars have, including the, the overall age of most of the stars in that galaxy. So those stellar population studies tell you how long ago did most stars form. You can also 
go on a direct search for the history of star formation in the universe. We've said many times on this podcast, if you look far enough away, you're looking back in time, purely due to the amount of time it takes light to travel to you. So you look to very, very distant galaxies and you look at their groups of stars. And in particular, young stars are very distinctive. They're very bright and their colour is very blue. So you can see in the distant universe young stars, in other words, stars being born, and work out how long ago the light that you're looking at was sent to you and and therefore work out when were most stars being formed. So there are those two different ways and both of those methods say that perhaps four-fifths of the stars were in place at the time at which the Earth formed. So the majority of stars in the universe today were formed at that time uh, but about a fifth more have, have formed since then. And it's interesting actually that star formation was winding down even when the Earth was formed about 4.5 billion years ago. And I don't think we yet have a clearly defined answer to why is it that star formation was starting to wind down maybe five or six billion years ago. Thanks, Andrew. Dominic, one for you now from Christy in Liverpool, or at Drugsworker, to use the proper Twitter handle. Will dead stars get so dim that we never see them again? Well, stars do certainly have a finite life. And the reason for that is that they get their energy from fusing hydrogen gas into helium. And obviously, as time goes on, they use up their reserve of hydrogen gas and eventually they run out. But it's not a simple case of running out of fuel and then getting fainter and dimmer and then just dying away. In fact, the final period of a star's life is one of the most interesting and complicated periods of a star's life. In the short term, the star does cool off and contract when it runs out of hydrogen. But in fact, that makes the star warm up because gravitational energy is being released by that contraction. And as the star warms up, that means it can then start fusing heavier atomic nuclei together, like helium into lithium and then lithium into still heavier elements. And that releases more energy and means that you have this sudden burst of new energy towards the end of a star's life. And the net result of that is that the star swells up and becomes what we call a red giant star and actually becomes far more luminous than it has been at any previous time in its lifetime. Now, eventually the star will completely run out of fuel. There'll be no more fusion that can take place, even to heavier elements. And when that happens, the star will have no escape from gravitational collapse apart from quantum mechanics, and it will collapse down to form what we call either a white dwarf, if it's a star of less than about one and a half times the mass of the Sun, or a neutron star, if it's a more massive star. Now, white dwarfs and neutron stars are incredibly faint stars, and that's because they're very small. White dwarfs are typically about the size of the Earth, and neutron stars are a few kilometres across, so about the size of a city. Now, they're not actually cooler than other stars. White dwarfs are of similar temperatures to the Sun. Uh, Neutron stars are actually millions of degrees on their surfaces. But they're very faint because they're very small. They haven't got much area over which to produce light. Now, they have no source of new energy, and that means they will cool off. 
But in fact, the timescales for that are incredibly long because they're so faint. So although we think white dwarfs will turn into what we call black dwarfs eventually, these faded stars that are completely invisible in the night sky, in fact, no black dwarfs have formed in the universe yet. And we think the universe will be several times its current age before any black dwarfs form. And Carolyn John Stenton wants to know, why is the Earth non-spherical? OK, well, so when the Earth is forming, it will have not been quite as solid as it was now. And gradually, you end up with an Earth today that has stabilised to a shape such that it's got the minimum energy. So the way to think about this is if there was only gravity determining the shape of the Earth... Gravity pulls in everything equally from all directions. And so the shape that best sort of minimises what we call the potential energy, the gravitational energy, is one of a sphere where everything's pulled in as tight to the centre of mass as it can. The catch is that the Earth is spinning on its axis. Not so fast at the poles. By the time we get to Europe, it's the surface is spinning about 1,000 kilometres an hour. By the time you get to the equator, you're talking about 1,600 kilometres an hour. And so you've got this kinetic energy to take into account. Now, because, well, every, as everybody knows, when you empty the clothes out of the washing machine after the spin cycle, if something's spinning, it tends to fling matter to the outside. And so where the Earth spins fastest, the material tends to have been squished out more to the edge. And it's not a big effect, but the Earth isn't entirely spherical. So there's a tiny difference of about 20 kilometres, such that the radius at the equator is larger than the radius at the poles. And given that you're talking this on a radius of 6,400, really the Earth is nearly spherical, but it's due to this, this spin of the Earth. It, it gets much more noticeable when you go away from the Earth and look at some of the gas giants, and I think Saturn is the most extreme about this. We call this oblateness, this sort of slightly squished sphere, where you get a difference of 6,000 kilometres between the equatorial and the polar radii, and that's an effect of about 10%, much more extreme than we see here on Earth. As always, we want your questions and comments. Get them in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. And on that topic, Neil Rotsan, Toby Rawls, Jeff Griffith, Tobias Knudsen, Timothy Hardina, Martin Simons and everyone else that wrote to ask where we had gone. Thank you so much for all your kind comments. And finally for this month, naked scientist Sarah Castor-Perry met Professor Carlos Frank, director of the Institute for Computational Cosmology at Durham University, to shed some light on dark matter. Well, dark matter is almost uh, 100 years old. In the 1930s, a very eccentric Swiss astronomer called Franz Zwicky first inferred that the universe must contain large amounts of something that we couldn't see. Strangely enough, he called it missing matter. It wasn't missing, it was there, it was just dark. Now, Zwicky's argument was kind of ignored for a long time until uh, in the 1970s, astronomers reached the very fundamental conclusion that galaxies wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the dark matter. Because it turns out that um, the stars that go round and round the center of the galaxy do so at speeds that are much too high for the galaxy to be kept in place by the gravitational force of the material that you can see, of the stars that you can see. Hence, there must be something you cannot see, keeping galaxies together. That is the dark matter. And that was discovered in the 1970s when astronomers were able to measure the speeds of stars and gas clouds in galaxies and then find what really the smoking gun, if you like, for dark matter came with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope 
imaged galaxy clusters, collections of galaxies in the universe, and found an incredibly peculiar type of galaxy that was absolutely crazy. These were not galaxies like uh, we're familiar with. These were little arcs of light, uh, now known as gravitational arcs. And what these things were are also galaxies very far behind the galaxy cluster whose light has been deflected by the presence of dark matter and the image is distorted into these bizarre art-like features. Now, the only way to explain that phenomenon of gravitational lensing, which Einstein predicted, actually, is through the existence of dark matter. So we had the smoking gun, and then, finally, everything came into place when the cosmic role of dark matter was first appreciated. When, in the 1980s, people began to do large-scale simulations of the universe. I was lucky enough to be involved in this area from the beginning. And uh, what uh, we recognized was that in order to understand why the universe has galaxies in the first place, let alone what keeps them together, why the universe has structure, why there are clusters of galaxies, we needed to have dark matter playing the key role in sculpting the universe. So dark matter is the sculptor of the universe, the architect of the universe. And now I think um, 99.99% of the scientific community agrees that the dark matter is here to stay. And we now know that the dark matter accounts for about 80% of all the matter in the universe. The rest, 20%, is the ordinary matter of which you, me, stars, planets, and all the uh, more interesting things in the universe are made of. So as well as normal matter, everything we can see, we can touch, what else is out there? Is that all dark matter? And how much of the universe is that? Well, actually... All forms of matter, dark and visible, are only a quarter of what the universe contains. The lion's share of the universe, 75%, is not matter at all. It's something else, something we understand so little about that we call dark energy. The darkest part of it is really our understanding of what it is. We know it's there because we can see the devastating effects it's having on the evolution of the universe at large because the dark energy is responsible for the fact that our universe is not only expanding, but it's expanding at an accelerating rate. So dark energy is something that's pushing, causing the universe to expand faster and faster and faster. Uh, And that accounts for 75% of what the universe contains. So essentially, three-quarters of the universe is dark energy. One-quarter is matter. Of that one-quarter, for every gram of visible matter, there are five grams of invisible dark matter. So I'm guessing that dark matter plays a key role in the universe and a key role in the models that we use to explain how the universe works. Yes, I often like to say to my students that um, they should be grateful to the dark matter because without dark matter we wouldn't be here. And the reason is quite simple. It's not the dark matter as such that's important. It's the gravitational force that it exerts because this gravitational force of the dark matter is responsible for the growth and formation of galaxies in the universe. And without dark matter, we would have no galaxies. Our universe would be just a vast, boring expanse of amorphous matter. So the dark matter is responsible 
for the formation of galaxies. Without dark matter, there would be no galaxies. Without galaxies, of course, there would be no stars. Without stars, there would be no planets. Without planets, there would be no people. So dark matter really is responsible for all the great richness of structure that we see in the universe around us. How are we looking for evidence of that? We've hypothesized that without this, everything that we know couldn't exist, but how do we go about specifically looking for it? One of the great scientific achievements of the 20th century was the development of an idea that eventually became known as the standard model of cosmology. So this is a sort of creation myth almost. It's a theory of the biggest object in the universe, the universe itself. So according to this theory, the standard model of cosmology, the universe began, of course, in the Big Bang about 13.7 billion years ago. And since then, it has been expanding. Recently, it went into this accelerated expansion. But uh, at early times, the universe was very smooth, almost perfectly smooth, but not completely perfectly smooth. There were small irregularities. And these irregularities grew under the attraction of dark matter gravity to produce the galaxies that we see today. Now, this uh, theory was first put forward in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, has been developed largely through another wonderful tool that cosmologists have developed, the tool of computer simulations. Because it turns out that in cosmology, we have an enormous disadvantage compared to other scientists because we cannot carry out experiments or we cannot go out in space and weigh a galaxy. But uh, over the last 30 years or so, we developed a really, really powerful strategy, which is to simulate the evolution of the whole universe. And what we do is, in principle, quite simple. We just uh, program a computer. It has to be a large computer, a supercomputer, with the laws of physics. And we supplement that with some assumption about what the universe contains, dark matter, dark energy, ordinary matter, and then we let the supercomputer solve the equations of physics to create, as it were, a virtual universe. So the combination of new theoretical ideas, computer simulations, and astronomical observations is one of the great success stories of science over the last 30 years because this theory, called the cold dark matter theory, accounts for a vast array of astronomical observations from the properties of individual galaxies to the large structure of the universe and, moreover, to the properties of the early universe, which we can observe. So over this whole range of timescales, from the time when the universe was only a few hundred thousand years old to today, 13.7 billion years later, and over a whole range of scales from galaxies to the large structure of the universe, this uh, standard model of cosmology accounts for virtually everything that we can see. So it's a success story. However, there's a little bit of a um, letdown recently because uh, observations of a particular kind of galaxy known as dwarf galaxies, very tiny galaxy satellites that are already in the outer parts of the Milky Way, have begun to uh, cast a shadow on the standard model of cosmology. So these dwarf galaxies are very, very peculiar things because they are essentially lumps of dark matter with a little sprinkling of stars, very, very few stars, just enough so that astronomers can discover them. They are the perfect laboratory for the dark matter physicists because they are lumps of dark matter orbiting the Milky Way. 
And we can go and investigate the properties in detail by making measurements of the few stars that they contain. Now, this uh, has happened over the last few years, and to everybody's horror, the data seem to indicate that these lumps of dark matter is not what the doctor ordered, is not what the standard model of cosmology predicts should be there. And the differences are relatively subtle, but very, very fundamental. According to cold dark matter theory, these lumps should be really, really dense. Yet, the observations show that they're not dense, they're puffed up. They're almost at the verge of dissolving. So you're able to actually observe this dark matter? No, you don't see the dark matter, but you can infer its properties. This is where physics is so wonderful. You don't see the dark matter, it doesn't shine, it's completely dark. But you see the stars. The stars move around in response to the dark matter that's producing the gravity. So by studying motions of these stars, we learn about the dark matter without having to observe it. So were the results of these new observations not what you expected then? Exactly. They're absolutely unexpected and uh, they're a big, big challenge to the theory. Let me just say before we throw the theory out that this theory is, is, is really, really powerful and the theory has been so successful that it has encouraged experimental physicists to develop experiments to try and detect this stuff. The ingenuity of experimental particle physicists is unbounded and uh, they have developed apparatus that could actually detect dark matter. And actually, in the last two years, there have been lots of claims, well, lots, a few, claims of um, discovery of the dark matter. The trouble is, different groups have claimed to have found dark matter with properties very different from what the previous group had claimed. And so at the moment, uh, that subject is in a very confused state. And I don't think there's any consensus as to whether the dark matter, uh, consensus that dark matter has been discovered. There may be hints that we're on the verge of discovering it. So that's where we are today. And, uh, and I, I think it is uh, one of these uh, situations where I feel particularly lucky to be an astrophysicist because uh, I think uh, where the universe is just so incredibly fascinating, revealing surprises at every turn. And this is one of those big surprises. Durham University's Carlos Frank speaking with Naked Scientist Sarah Castor-Perry. That's all we have on this month's Naked Astronomy. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. In the meantime, keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com and you can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Music